Hi, and welcome to this special episode of the VFX show, where we're focusing much more on the VFX and less on the show. Uh, we thought that it was about time that we actually tackled head on some of the uh, enormous amount of uh, press developments and general, uh, I guess, uh, interest in artificial intelligence, or in particular, what probably more be described as uh, machine learning in the area of uh, VFX. I'm joined as a uh, I regularly am by my good friends, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, I'm great. And Jason Diamond. Fantastic. So guys, uh, we've been doing the VFX show and we keep on discussing, you know, various things behind the scenes, but we're probably going through one of the largest uh, shifts we've seen in, I think, filmmaking VFX since we had digital cinematography introduced. I think it's kind of worthy for its own topic, but do you perceive this as as I do, as like that shift between uh, analog and digital cinematography, or is it more like the VR bubble of hype that came and kind of then deflated? I mean, I think this really is the, you know, all this machine learning and AI tools uh, that we're starting to see emerge uh, really just in the last six to eight months, I feel like is when it all kind of started like becoming more public. Um, and I know that these are things that uh, have been around for a while. I, I, I was thinking about something really interesting. Uh, in 2019, I had the opportunity to talk with um, uh, John Knoll and Dennis Murin, and um, where I moderated a talk with the two of them, where they were just talking about, you know, the history of visual effects and kind of creative problem solving and stuff like that. It was a cool talk. And one of the things I asked John um, towards the end of the talk was, you know, where do you see things going uh, in the future? You know, are there, you know, machine learning tools and stuff? And at the time in 2019, so not even that long ago, the only thing that uh, he brought up and that he mentioned was um, denoisers, you know, kind of being sort of the, that was kind of the mm -hmm. gateway drug for a lot of the machine learning stuff into the universe of visual effects. But um, there was no talk about anything connected to any of the sorts of image generation tools or video generation tools or even the more sophisticated things, uh, you know, like the Wonder Studio stuff that the guys you talked to recently, Mike. And, you know, so I, I think it's, to me, it's the biggest sea change in uh, the workflow and the potential yield of visual effects uh maybe yeah since the transition from analog to digital for sure and it could in the long run be even i think maybe bigger than that what do you think jason i mean i would tend to agree i think the interesting thing is that it's all a matter of democratization in a certain sense right like we had um you know digital uh capture or even digital uh visual effects cg and stuff uh, not initially, but in, in the nineties became, you know, more accessible to normal people and not just ILM and, and proprietary tools. And then as we got farther, we got like the red one that brought 4k raw filmmaking to anyone who had 20 grand. Uh, and you could even say back in the day, like when MIDI came out, and all the composers were like, that's it, we're done, you know? And in fact, of course, it spurred, it spurred a whole new genre and style of things. It still meant that people had to be musicians to use it in a lot of ways. I, I mean, generally, of course, experimental things are always 
on the outside. But it's the same here. But I feel like because we have the internet to um, amplify all the things that change, that the effects are amplified as well. So, you know, people who don't know anything about AI see this thing and they go, oh, my God, you know about this. AI? Like the, the bubble surrounding everything grows bigger and faster. And I'm not and I'm certainly agreeing with you on the sea change nature of it, like the, the fact that that people like us and and out and out and out to other people who do what we do in various ways are experiencing the ability to do things that they would have to either hire someone else for or spend a lot of man hours learning something wonder dynamics i think being the maybe the best example of that right now so let's let's just uh zero in on wonder uh studios because you've mentioned them and it's a little confusing so uh for those people that don't know and i Actually, I should even back up one more step. I think the most confusing thing right now, to your point, is how fast things are moving. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, you know, at one stage, I felt like I was a bit of an expert in an area. And then I was talking to someone, <laughs> I said, man, it's just so hard to keep up. And this uh, friend of mine said, you just have to accept the fact that very soon you won't be able to keep up. And they mm -hmm. were right. And so you have to kind of, uh, you know, give up and learn to love the bomb kind of thing. You have to kind of say, all right, I'm not going to understand everything. Um, mm -hmm. I can't keep across everything and pick your battles. But that being said, we're going to pick a few battles today and we're going to start with uh, Wonder Studios. Uh, so the way this works uh, in this particular case is that Wonder Dynamics is the company that came out with Wonder Studios, which is in closed beta. Now, a lot of the things we're going to talk about today, like MetaHuman Creator and, and even, well, I think Runway is now out, but just a lot of them are either mm -hmm. in closed beta or like early releases because, as you say, it's so uh, so recent. And for that matter, um, Adobe's Firefly, which is, again, uh, in beta. So it's moving super fast. So you, if you're listening to this, you shouldn't feel in any way bad about yeah. the fact that you may not know something or like how the hell did that happen? Because as you say, in the, today <laughs> you'd go to a trade show every year and at NAB, you'd go to the trade show and you'd, oh, look, that's new, and we'd discuss it. And then, you'd, you know, it'd come out in a month or two after that and you'd, you know, eventually get it. And by the following year, you're across it. Now it's like, why even go into the trade show, right? There's just no point. Um, it's not how you learn about things. So we're going to be out of date by the time this goes to air. But notwithstanding that, let's keep going. So <laughs> Wonder <laughs> Studios um, set up a, a tool that is both for the novice and the professional. And what it does is allows you to just take a clip and uh, and then with th basically three button presses, the first button press being, what clip do I want? The second button press being, hey, find an actor in this shot, which in my case was me. And then the third button press is, you know, which uh, of the characters in the library would you like it to replace you with? So I pick... Um, you know, tech head or whatever, one of the uh, the crash dummy um, 3D character, and it will then do about 25 AI processes that removes me from the shot, does a clean background plate effectively. Now, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Uh, and it then does motion tracking or, or uh, mocap effectively of me, but just based on that single camera video, which could be an iPhone, right? Nothing by the way, about the depth camera in the iPhone, just in my case, we were shooting on, on uh, Blackmagic. So it's just straight footage, works out what my uh, body motion is, solves that, 
and my face and my, um, you know, effectively my, my uh, fax solution of my face creates the character, gets the right lighting on it, tracks the camera again, which is really hard given that it's again, mono footage, unknown camera and places that character with the right lighting and everything else into the scene and then outputs it and uh, gives it to you. Now that's the, I'm going to call that the one button press version. But in fact, it's much more than that because you can output the individual 3D uh, character. You can output the cleaned background plate. You can output a whole lot of data. So the company provides both the one button press, but also the platform that would then allow you to say, oh yeah, that looks good. Give me all the component files and now I'll polish it, clean it up, tweak it, um, whatever, and go on. And for the novice, that takes a staggering 45 minutes to do, maybe, right? Right. On a clip. <laughs> For the yeah. professional, that takes a jaw-dropping, unbelievably fast 45 minutes to do, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, which is the nature of this stuff, right? If you don't know what you're looking at, you're like, oh, my God, that took forever. And if you know what you're looking at, you're yeah. like, oh, my God, I can't believe how fast they did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and we were like, and I would to argue to your point, sorry to interrupt real quick. I would argue to you, the previous, previous points we made all your caveats, caveats of, you know, and it's not perfect and it's not this and it's not that that's just because it's new. I mean, obviously they've been working on it for X years or whatever they're doing, but it's only going to get better. And if, if in the 45 minute version, there are some, uh, optical flow or other issues that are happening based on clean plates or whatever. Like we all know that eventually those won't be there. So it's like, yeah. I mean, the 45 minutes is an arbitrary amount of time. I just picked that out of my uh, uh, yeah, experience I, I, with it, but yeah, yeah totally. it, in fact, it all get faster. So when we were, we had a podcast on FX guide with uh, the two, uh, well, the two founders who one of which is the CEO and one is now the uh, president um, and we'll, we'll get back on that in a second, but they were saying it'll get faster. Um, but also there's more to come, right? At the moment, they don't have the roto switched on. So that will actually provide foreground masking of objects and automatic roto. There are a bunch of other things coming that they have working in the lab uh, that mm -hmm. they haven't yet uh, released to the product. And while it will always be the one button press, it'll also get more and more sophisticated in what you can output. So you can just run it on a clip and get the mocap data. You can run it on a clip and just get the clean plate or whatever it is. Um, but I've got to say, like it, and I said this in our article, it works as advertised, right? You press one button and you get something yep. that most people just think is awesome. And we would notice imperfections. But I mean, I remember back in the day having this discussion with the foundry when they were talking about their first optical flow. And there was this discussion about, you know, it only gets you 80 or 90% of the way there. And I remember saying at the time, if 80 or 90% of the time means I had to spend one hour on a shot instead of 10 hours on a shot, yeah. that's, mm -hmm. I'm take, I'm buying it. <laughs> um, so yeah, the fact that it may not produce perfect solutions yet, or in some circumstances not produce uh, perfect solutions doesn't in any way negate its usefulness. Agreed. It's not as if it, it falls over. Uh, and also quite frankly, the stuff that it's tackling is so hard I did a bunch of tests with hands, with fingers interlocking and stuff. And we can discuss the fine details of this in a second, but like some of it worked really well, but some of it uh, had some issues. But solving hands is incredibly hard and normally requires mm -hmm. you know $5,000 gloves that are uh, tracking your fingers and stuff. To be able to pull that from mono video uh, that's shot handheld 
uh, without any calibration whatsoever uh, is remarkable. So yeah, and so I that's would add just in one of them. And I would add in about hands. I mean, anyone who's seen AI generated imagery from Midjourney will know that it's taken five generations for them to solve for five fingers instead of eight or whatever it is, uh, or the stable well, diffusion stuff that has arms coming out of people's backs and stuff. I think that that's an interesting point though. Like it speaks to the speed with which we're seeing the rapidity of change, like how quickly things are, are moving. Mm -hmm technologically speaking, you know, for, you know, when we first started seeing, at least at, at my university, when people first started seeing all the, you know, the mid journey, the stable diffusion, all the image generation tools that were out there, you know, text to text to image, there was a lot of that kind of like, well, yeah, it's, it's cool. Like it's interesting, you know, and there was sort of this dismissiveness, but it can't do hands, you know, was sort of the thing that you'd hear people <laughs> say all the time. And, you know, within, uh, you know, a month uh, or two at the most uh, from that first initial conversation with people, suddenly uh, hands seem to be less of an issue, right? A lot of those problems were worked out. And it's like everything that I hear people saying about, you know, now we're starting to see a, an explosion in, you know, a video like text to video work. Mm -hmm. And people, I, we've been sharing stuff in our little private chat, you know, this last couple of days uh, before doing this show of just things that are getting passed around on social media and all kinds of really interesting little snippets and bits. Um, and some of them get really, really sophisticated where they're actually generating mm -hmm. a movie trailer. There's a hilarious thing that somebody sent me just this afternoon about a, a fake pizza place commercial that that's one. all generated in a, a, yeah it's like pepperoni <laughs> pepperoni uh pizza hug, hug or something. something i don't know <laughs> yeah but i mean it's it's ridiculous and funny and and it doesn't really look that great but it's all generated yeah from uh you know a trained uh a set of different data sets a trained model and it's generating this video content it's happening so quickly and all the stuff that the is it wonder studio is the software is the software yeah all the stuff that it's doing now and in the talk that you had with those guys uh you know they're they were alluding to things that are sort of you know coming that they've been working on addressing issues but it's only going to get better and better it's not even in uh it's in a closed beta it's not even you know a mm -hmm. release candidate yet and you know that's just only going to continue to accelerate and improve so so let's break it down a bit just so we've got some taxonomy. So the the thing is we've got a bunch of different tech going on here, right? And it's kind of useful, I think, to think about it in a couple of different ways. The first thing I would say is there is just this, the phenomenon that caught the, the zeitgeist of chat GPT, yeah? And this mm -hmm. is basically the ability for a computer just at a text level to seemingly answer questions in ways that were incredibly conversational. It's its own category, I think, because it had so much impact in the world. And it comes from these massive, massive uh, exercises in uh, training data to basically predictively come up with what the next logical part of a sentence is and contextualize it in a conversation. So I'm pretty sure on the podcast a while ago, I pointed out that uh, one of the problems with the earlier versions of digital humans and um and chatbots and AIs and stuff, which was the uh, famous Clippy, 
from Microsoft was that mm-hmm. the thing had no memory. It basically had 10 operations and then Microsoft blanked it so that it couldn't remember any context of 10 goes ago, which meant that, it, you know, in the 11th time, it would just come around and ask you a question to ask you 10 <laughs> things ago, which made it inherently annoying, right? And then what, if we run the clock forward to chat GPT is going on, is that you have all these tokens and there are this massive number of tokens which reflect how much it's kind of tracking and building uh, contextually what's going on and you can be providing additional information. So there's there's that chat GPT and there's a bunch of things that I would put in that single category of exceptional but singular in their kind of focus, right? And I would put stable diffusion in the same uh, category, which is a single thing of text to image based off mm-hmm. training data. Uh, exceptionally powerful, and there's a bunch of them, obviously mid-journey and, and a bunch of things. Um, and then there's uh, there are sort of the next level up where people are taking that and then building on it in ways that make it kind of like apps. And I put runway in that category where it's, yeah. here's a video clip, I'm going to style transfer it. Style transfer being a core technology, sort of like stable diffusion and ChatGPT in that sense. But it's now like, hey, I've got an app, I can take a clip and I can make it look like it's a watercolor. Uh, mm-hmm. And then at the, the above that, we get, um, it's not a clear division, but there's like MetaHuman Animator, which is also in beta at the moment which is using a bunch of machine learning tools to achieve an end. So in that case, um, we're probably all familiar with MetaHuman from Epic, mm-hmm. and it's terrific at producing a digital character. But MetaHuman Animator, which is still in beta, lets you just sit in front of the computer, turn your head to the left, turn your head to the right, sort of show your teeth in a, in a very odd <laughs> uh, human uh, expression, and then it's going to form a digital version of your face. And then in the same clip, like just I've done that operation, I can start talking and later, like, a, you know, whatever it is, five minutes later when you've done a few things in the software, you have a digital version of me delivering that line. It looks like me. Um, it's obviously not fully textured and lit and everything, but it's, it's a remarkable uh, digital human and it uses the underlying rig that, um, that uh, Epic has developed. And so it's using the best of... Uh, Cubic, who is one of the other companies that Epic bought with the lateral to get that uh, both interpreting what I'm saying, because that's obviously one of the things it's having to do just mm-hmm. at an AI level and building my face, which is another thing. And then, uh, you know, realizing stuff from a mono camera again, because, well, it can be a stereo rig, but I digress. Could also be an iPhone uh, too with the depth. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you've got, and then this same category, this is where we, I think, place Wonder Studios, which is it's not one piece of tech, it's in this case mm-hmm. 25. And so I think that's the first trend I'd like to discuss with you guys, because I think I think the incredible power that's shown by Wonder Studios and MetaHuman Animator and stuff isn't that they have singularly done the huge quantum leap that happened when, um, say, uh, stable diffusions came out. It's more like they're harnessing a whole lot of these and putting them together. And I think that's where the VFX industry is going to really take off when we start seeing that concatenation of, of AIs. But that's my opinion. Um, Matt, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, now you have to bear with me here because I, like everyone, I'm trying to keep up with all these things. Now, isn't there along the lines of what you're describing there, isn't there a a thing the 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 Lola isn't the Lola like 
a sort of a variation of taking one parts of one model, parts of another model, and you you call parts that you want and you connect them together and you get that's the Lola. Is that correct? Is that do you know, Mike? Is that right? That description? Uh I'm not familiar with that expression. Oh, I, I feel like that's something Sorry. I was I was reading. I could be wrong. So uh, anybody who's an expert out there listening, forgive me if I'm misspeaking here. But my understanding was that uh, you know, these the idea of the Lola, I can't remember the what the acronym stands for exactly. I could guess something language, but um that you can take different sets of these things and start to combine them together and you get a new version, right? A new, a new um trained data set, the Lola, and then you can create another Lola and then you can combine two different Lolas and you you have this sort of infinite sort of modular puzzle. And at least in my compositor's brain, I sort of imagine it like nodes, you know, like a node tree, like in Nuke or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I think that the what we're seeing in the synthesis, the 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 Wonder Studios tool, the synthesis of all of these different systems into kind of almost the way that we think about a pipeline in visual mm-hmm. effects into, you know, an integrated set of tools that approach and apply all of the sort of knowledge, accumulated knowledge of, say, a visual effects artist who's been working in industry for a long time, and they're combining all these systemic models to do these things essentially procedurally, right? Uh, everything is happening, you know, as with, you know, I hate this kind of analogy, but with the push of a button. Um, and I think the the ability to be able to take so many of the things that have for so long been so complex and required so much, um, the building of so much human knowledge and human skill to be able to just create a clean plate, you know, to be able to go through and make your own clean plate for Mm -hmm. many uh, decades was, you know, and has been, and still is really the stock and trade of, you know, some really great, uh, you know, hardworking frontline artists. Um, and now you've got uh, these systemic tools that are able to go through. And I mean, it, you know, it's not a huge leap to imagine like, okay, well, you can, you can analyze what's there and you can go through and, you know, content aware fill kind of be it in uh, Photoshop or the version in After Effects, you know, that concept is pretty clear and it makes sense. And now to sort of take a system and automate that process using all kinds of segmentation to be able to determine where something is, uh, you know, it's, it seems like a logical step. It's sort of, I feel like a lot of these things are, you know, when, when, when I was a student, I didn't have a computer in college, right? That was unusual to have a computer. I had a typewriter and everything I learned about computers, I learned on the job, like, you know, at ILM post-college in the early 1990s. And I feel like the promise of the computer age was always this idea that, you know, we would we would work less and we'd have more leisure time and we'd be able to do more things. And I do think that there's something... uh well, I think a lot of these things are frightening for people because they do feel like people are afraid it's, you know, coming for my job. And I sort of feel like there there's some modicum of truth to that. I think that there is potential of the loss of certain kinds of jobs. Um, but I also think there's the promise of something else too. There's a, 
forgive me, I'll, I'll, I just, I'm going to follow this train of thought here for one second, but yeah, yeah. there's a great talk that I saw uh, from GDC. I think it was from 2017. And this guy, Andrew Maximov, who is the founder of Promethean AI, gave this talk that was super prescient. You can find it on YouTube. It's a really, really good talk. It's about, I think, 20 or 30 minutes long. And he goes in and he talks about um, the tools that they were developing at the time, which were these kind of procedural tools for generating, um, you know, uh, game assets, right? And so he would, you could say like, hey, give me a 1980s kid's bedroom and it would go through its library and, uh, you know, rearrange everything and create this kind of cool space. And in the talk, uh, you know, uh, this guy Maximoff was talking about how he just gave a follow-up talk, which I missed, but through the VES chapter uh, in LA, I believe. Um, and I, that's probably available online at this point, but I'd love to hear what he had to say about where we're at now. But he he was talking about how, you know, if you reach a point where these tools are able to do a lot of these things for you, which is the direction we were heading in, and he was very uh, forward-thinking in this area. At the time, he said that, um, you know, there are people who spent their entire lives learning to move around vertices, you know, essentially like you're not, you mm -hmm. know, in essence. Right. And, you know, but really is that a job for a person, you know, like in a weird way, like ideally that's a job for a machine. Um, and if you no longer are spending your time doing that kind of labor, be it, you know, creating the clean plate or um, moving around the vertices, then what is it that you bring to the table? What is it that the artist brings to the table? And his argument was, you know, at the end that, you know, art is a process of assigning meaning, right? You know, it sounds like the kind of age old argument you'd hear about conceptual art or something like that. But I think it really gets back to the idea of story and of like, creativity and freeing up, you know, the artist to no longer have to solely be, uh, or the storytelling solely be the, you know, the, uh, the universe of the many years practitioner. Like, I think to what you're saying, Jason, like there is this democratization that comes about through the advent of all these tools. And I know that that's also, you know, controversial to say that too, because it also can mean the loss of many um, jobs. But I think that there's there's great potential and there will always be additional problems to solve, you know, that, that you know, maybe another machine tool will come along and fix. But I just feel like we're in this really exciting moment where things are changing really fast. It's scary, but it's also, I think, really, um, it's rich with possibility at the same time. Yeah. The um, the thing that I was going to mention, one of you mentioned earlier, so I forgot which uh, of my uh, esteemed colleagues said this, but you were talking about the first time that you became aware of stuff with this machine learning. But I think for me, the first time I became really hooked on machine learning was actually like 2020, 2019, 2020 with uh, what was then deep fakes, which became mm -hmm. like neural rendering and mm -hmm. stuff because it was the power of neural rendering and being able to produce. So we've done a lot of work in getting very realistic 3D faces happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, you could do these uh, at that time face swaps and they looked remarkably good and mm -hmm. in no way kind of digital. Now there were some artifacts in the early ones and Lord only knows bad ones. <clears throat> And they were initially only working very well when you were facing straight at camera, but it was 
it was a definite quantum leap to take a neural rendering approach for swapping a face versus uh, trying to do a straight comp version or a CG version. And that was one of those few moments where it felt like we were really ahead of the effects houses. It felt like we were doing stuff on computers and we were like, why aren't mm -hmm. the effects companies doing this? Because that CG character still looks kind of fake and we could do a better job here. And that really happened maybe a year or two later when we saw, um, I think it was the digital Luke Skywalker. And it mm -hmm. was like, that was done with the traditional CG. And then this guy who now works for Royal <laughs> did the, <laughs> the deep fakes version of it. Everyone was like, well, that's much better. How come this kid in the garage could do something yeah. that, uh, that ILM couldn't do? Now that's an unfair characteristic of ILM skill base, of course, but, um, but there was approach. this- It's just an approach. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a matter of approach, not of talent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also want to loop back and say <clears throat> my idea that these are at different levels is not to say that the winning solution is somehow the aggregate solution. Like I think it is exceptionally good that Wonder Studios does what it does with an aggregate of like whatever. But if you go to the other end of the spectrum, I'm just as impressed virtually with Move AI. Now Move mm -hmm. AI lets you do motion capture with say three iPhones and you put three iPhones on three tripods and it they're all got the same lenses effectively. They're so well calibrated by Apple. And they therefore have very distinctive profiles and characteristics. And so you can get very accurate uh, mm -hmm. motion capture. And of course it can see behind somebody very well because the motion from a single camera never sees what's happening behind us. I mean, yeah. it just has to guess at it. And so these, these one-off things uh, are still very, very powerful. I think- well, You even say where Runway started, where, where Runway started before the- Gen one stuff, you know, they had plenty of, you know, AI assisted um, uh, or machine learning assisted clean plates, green screens, you know, uh, any number of uh, solutions similar in, in the, what you're calling like vertical nature yeah. of, you know, procedures. They started at one and then added one and then added one and then added one. Now they've obviously pivoted to include, you know, they're Gen 1 and now Gen 2 uh, text-to-video. Yeah, I think I think the work that was done on Welcome to Chetnia, uh, which was rightly given a uh, technical Oscar this year, um, was so pivotal. And when we interviewed Ryan back then, because that film came out like in 2020, um, he said, I was like, what do you think the next kind of, you know, AI things, where is it of interest to you? And he said, the thing that's interesting to me is when somebody builds, and I'm paraphrasing, a, uh, a nuke version of AI, in other words, something where you actually do have uh, these modules. And I don't know if that's even feasible because it's moving so fast, but while Runway or Wonder Studios or whoever are building these concatenated uh, solutions, it would be really interesting if there was um, some kind of, to use your thing, Matt, like nodal way of including uh, various AI things to build up a composite pipeline yourself rather than kind of either going for a specialist tool over here and then another generalist tool over there. Well, you could argue that it's essentially what's happening in say Wonder Studio, right? I mean, they do have, I mean, I don't know the architecture obviously, but they are running procedures that are aggregating, 
So at a certain point, I mean, I know there there's there's data sharing, and it's not no it's no not no. I mean, you're absolutely right. Saying in my head, but but I but, guess you know they are absolutely doing that. But I guess the question is, and this isn't I guess the case with Nuke even, but like, could you have could that you architecture? It? Yeah, because like, what if I want to use a move AI in that nodal tree, effectively not just the one that right. they're being they're using. Um, they're sure they so, or, I shot, or I shot a clean plate. Let's yeah. say I was yeah. using a robot and I shot a clean plate. I don't need that AI have a nice clean plate or whatever it is. Yeah, well, in that case, you'd be fine, right? Because in in the Wonder Studios, as it stands, you download the three D model, and um, and then you'd uh, just be able to use your own clean plate. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's complicated. It's also interesting like what areas are going to get changed. And I think one of the ones that's going to get a huge amount of variation real fast, uh, building, I think your point, Matt, is uh, environment work, because yeah. we've already seen that in uh, UE5 with Epic, with its ability to sort of put in things and automatically have forests readjust itself around uh, whatever you're adding into the environment. And so if we've got sort of a stable diffusion 2D generation of what that jungle looks like, and we, you know we're, One, we're seconds away. It feels like from having a three D environment tool that'll let you create any three D environment, and just uh, it'll use machine learning to populate it and adapt it. Yeah, was it an was it an epic demo that yep. uh, that where they showed like it was a, a house or a cabin in the woods or something, and they said, you know, make it look like it's uh, it would, and it was like a you know beautiful sunny day. And everything was all lush and green. They said, "Make it look that's, like winter." That's, and, I think, Adobe Fireflies. Okay, demo. Yeah, and yeah. which is like such, and it's a still but, image. But what an impressive demo! But you know, if you can do it with a still image, like you can do it with yeah. X number of still images per second at a certain point too. So, but also to some of the, I think some of the techniques we talk about on this show, which is also sort of the newest sort of part of the visual effects pipeline, virtual production. You have companies like Sehan Lee that are doing uh, text to uh, planar uh, environments for a virtual production wall that does, you know, uh, gives you foreground, midground, background, auto segmented pieces that you can change, move, and do whatever for, I mean, a two and a half D approach. But to all of our points, it's only a matter of time before you'll be able to do that in a full 3D, like, uh, you know, op environment with text and not have a, a UE artist building something from scratch, you know, they'll be there to make it better. But of course the I'm UE gonna, artist is going to use the AI tools in the UE yeah. environment to just have it generate <laughs> right. the, but exactly. here's the thing I'm going to ask you guys about, because it's a super fundamental thing that I hit up with uh, somebody about the other day. Like a lot of my output at the end of the day is pixels on a flat plane. Right now, whether I used whatever technique to get there, the actual thing at the end of it, let's call it a quick time, is just a video for want of a better term, right? So in the old days, we talked about 2D versus 3D. Uh, but what I'm talking about now is like a new interpretation of that, which is almost like, is it modeled or is it just inferred? And do I really need to model it if I can infer it? Because Sort of some people are like, oh, it's much more flexible if you had a 3D model because then it could turn around. And I'm like, but if the inference model could turn around, why do I need a 3D model to then mm -hmm. texture, light, shade, and render? I'll just get the correct inference model of what it looks like 
when it, it turns makes total back. sense. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, well, how much do we think that matters? Or is, I guess I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think, I think it, it, well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great it's a great question. I think it's an interesting distinction. I mean, there are also you know several text to 3d systems that are you know in a nascent state right now but that are you know in development that are really interesting and i think it you know what what that question makes me think of something that's kind of interesting which is in the transition from analog to digital visual effects when we went from shooting on 35 millimeter film to shooting digitally right one of the things that was so interesting at least at ILM at the time, but to me was that when we were doing stuff with film, the film grain, and we all know this, we've all seen it, right? Film grain, mm -hmm. it would hide a lot of stuff. Like things would disappear into the noise of the film grain and you would match the grain and like edges and stuff would kind of get this kind of magical kind of, you know, sort of softness to them, right? The chemical, like, uh, uh, sort of sizzling of the movement of the grain would hide all this stuff. And it was really kind of cool. And, you know, you, they would, they were developing tools like that are now so commonplace, you know, like edge wrap and light wrap and stuff like that to kind of, you know, make a nice little smooth uh, spot in there and then put the sort of match the grain and put that over the top. And you could hide a lot of stuff that maybe didn't look so hot. And when you talk about Mike, you know, whether it's a 3d model or an inferred model, you know, something that's inferred, like, I kind of think, you know, if it's inferred and it kind of looks correct, and as you're watching that quick time playback, um, if it tells the story and it and you're not mm -hmm. drawn to it specifically, it's sort of like that the difference between, you know, that hard edge and that sort of film grain edge. It's a it's an ephemeral thing. At a point it'll reach we'll reach a point where it's it's ephemeral and it's less significant the specificity of it and more significant the emotive quality and whether or not like it has the impact that is intended by the filmmaker well isn't it also really comes down to the ends justify the means like it's like does does a did mandalorian need to say they did virtual production like they only did that for marketing purposes and and to get the industry talking because they should but they didn't have to, right? No one, no one would have said if they never said that or anything and talked about how they did it, everyone would go, wow, that looked awesome. That must've been CG or, you know, we would break stuff down and go, oh, I wonder how they did that. But you wouldn't, you know what I mean? So I think, to, I guess maybe from an, it's split, right? From a, from a general viewing audience perspective, they don't care how it's done. They've been, the audience has been trained with BTS and actors and people saying, we did this practically when of course they didn't and what have you and whatever. And also all the talking about all the visual effects artists as they should. So the, the audience has been trained to understand, you know, what visual effects are generally and how they yeah. are put That's into a thing. Totally but the artists true. of course are on a, on a, the artists are the trained professionals. And so the artists might say, and we might say, oh, they use an inference model here, but they could have used a 3D model. But in the end, it's all hyperbole to a certain extent if the if it's executed to a point where the audience enjoys it. Well, yes? let me throw another another curveball at you. So uh, so we've discussed that they you can break it down vertically, right? Like is it a stacked or is it a, like a core technology and 
there's nothing wrong with either. And we've discussed that ideas that we just did. Um, let me put it this way. If you're a trained professional listening to this podcast, one of the things that you need to also confront is, am I using effectively the off the shelf solution by that I mean pre-trained data, or am I wanting to get involved in the training process? So I throw copycat into this discussion now from Nuke, right? The thing about copycat that makes it so different from what we're talking about with say Wonder Studios or some of the others is that I can provide the training data and I am mm -hmm. building my model as in AI model, as opposed to saying, well, you've done some machine learning and now I'm just gonna use it. So how much do we think the, for the VFX professional listening to this, it matters whether they have the skills or the capacity to actually get in at the training data level? Like, what do you think, Matt? I think in the long run, it will matter. Uh, and I think it'll matter, but I think what, what's interesting is that, you know, kind of maybe what I was joking about at the beginning in terms of just how my brain works. I feel like my brain works in nodes, right? <laughs> but like, I think that, uh, that user interface application of a new, the new, uh, uh, Copycat? Sorry, what's yeah? It, that's a great example. Like that user interface um, of being able to, for the artist to be able to access and utilize and train their own model without, uh, you know, some of the heavy lifting that might be required on the back end. Like that's coming too. Like that'll be something that it will be productized and turned into a set mm -hmm. of tools that an artist can augment and manipulate in order to arrive at a, at a certain destination that they're seeking. I mean, you could, you could envision uh, ways in which, you know, even an individual artist's, um, you know, shot library and skill sets and the kinds of things that they've done could be utilized to assist in the training of, you know, certain systems. It's like all the, all the things that you're, you're doing in a, I mean, for lack of a better term in a kind of old school way, uh, you know, could be applied to some systemic solution in the future, it seems like to me. Well, because let's say like, you know, Matt, you're a talented compositor and I hire you because I want your compositing viewpoint, you know, Todd Vaziri, any number of, you know, hero compositors. So why wouldn't you want to train a model based on how you work and your approaches and your outcomes so that it helps you make shots better. Obviously that's not, you know, maybe how it would work in a facility, but from an artist's perspective, which with what you were saying before, like the, the histrionics of your work informing the model. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like all of the sort of, again, it's like, you know, it's, it's not there yet. I don't think it's all these things are, are coming and they're coming faster and faster, but the the this the use of those kind of systemic tools will only serve to accelerate the yield and output of the individual right i mean that's the whole sure i mean to get specific for a second and i'll just go back to my original example of chat gpt right we've already seen people there are people that put out job ads out for people that have really good prompting skills to be able to drive chat gpt okay but if we put a pin in that for a second, that's using the pre-trained data of ChatGPT, right. which mm -hmm. 
is only trained up to stuff from a couple of years ago, right? It doesn't include anything that's happened in the last two or three years because the training data stopped at this point in time. And so, for example, the invasion uh, or what's happening in Russia and, and the Ukraine right now, the what might be happening with political leaders in the next election, none of that chat GPT, chat GPT 3.5 or 4 is going to know about because it's stuff that was not in the internet yet uh, when it stopped training. Now we're doing some work with Soul Machines um, in New Zealand and Soul Machines is a great company, does digital humans. Um, and I've known Mark Sager for ages. I think you guys probably know Mark as well. He's like a really good ex-wetter uh, guy who just did landmark work in facial work. So he went and set up Soul Machines and Soul Machines now have a new version of their digital humans where it can be connected to ChatGPT. Okay, well, theoretically, I guess, anyone that had a digital model could connect it to ChatGPT. What's really interesting about their model, and this is not confidential, is that you actually set it up with multiple files. And one of those files is additional specific domain area knowledge that you want your digital human to know about. So I'm going to paraphrase this now to make it simple to avoid confusion. It's not this simple, but let's imagine the three separate files. One says, hey, ChatGPT, great, but you need to know a bunch of other stuff. Here's all the other stuff you specifically want to know about. And let's say we were setting this up to be something that we could uh, would discuss. I don't know. Uh, here's a good example. They're discussing Mercedes cars, right? German cars. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it'd have everything about the current model of Mercedes. Now they have another file, which is things I don't want you to discuss. <laughs> if you think about it, that's actually just as important, right? Yeah, Because you don't want it to start saying, well, you could just as well use an Audi or you could just as well use, you know, a BMW. Right. Um, and, and then it has specific direction that you want the agent to go in, in the third file. Now, if that makes sense, then you go, okay, so the skill now isn't just that I managed to use this chat GPT or that I used all the other cool stuff that they use to make their digital humans, but that I actually understand how to add to the training data to give it more knowledge, add to its control structure so it doesn't say things that I don't want and give it direction in a way that is what the client would want while still maintaining the interactivity and spontaneity that's coming from the character. And I feel like that's a really interesting model for where I think VFX artists need to go. I think mm -hmm. there'll be a class of stuff where you go, well, yeah, you can do the one button press, but you want really good results. You need to sort of provide this extra layer of insight and skill, which I can help you with. And also there's some pitfalls over here. I know what they are as well. So I can help, for example, mm -hmm. avoid biases in the training data, avoid you know other things that might cause it to not produce the results that you want. And then also have some capacity to direct it because after all, I'm probably not the auteur of this story that I'm a visual effects artist for. And so to use that Soul Machines metaphor, I feel like that could be an incredibly strong place to be. Now, whether you're using <clears throat> Nuke or some special new version of something that's a VFX AI tool, the ability to do those three things in addition to using Mm -hmm. The very cool tool that some mega corporation has managed to do, because let's face it, no individual effects house in the world has the capacity to create the kind of power of a chat GPT that's like astroturf amount of data and stuff. But it's not domain specific to the problem that my director might be interested mm -hmm. in. So I don't know, Jason, it just it's my theory on things, but I 
interested in your opinion. No, I mean, it makes total sense. It's adding, adding context to a broad approach is, I mean, that's the basis of what you're describing, right? Like to your point, I can't, I can't make a Volvo car, but I can buy one and then I can buy aftermarket parts and make it myself look how I want and paint it how I want and do all these other things. It's the same model. You know, I need, I need the car portion of the, of the AI model that I can't generate by myself, but I should, and most likely will have the tools to, to your point, direct it and give it, which is essentially like a larger prompt training in a sense. Cause you're, you're, you're telling it something, which is the prompt, and then you're either adding information in the prompt or restricting information in the prompt. I mean, I think like the simplest version of that that we've seen in the past is like the old um, uh, fake high-speed optical flow plug-in for Afterflex Twix store, right? Mm-hmm. And it would have optical flow errors everywhere because it didn't know what an a foreground edge was versus a background edge or a fence or whatever. But if you added, if you just gave it a mask, it would go, oh, don't look there. Cool. Right. It's the same thing. And then all of a sudden you have a, a you know, refined optical flow model just by doing a little roto. Now, now you'd have auto segmentation. You wouldn't have to do that. You know, right. I guess too, what it makes me think of is, you know, when we look at the the world of visual effects and the the kinds of, you know, in the in the modern age of computer generated visual effects, let's say, like how many different kinds of shots and problems are there that need to be solved? I mean, when you look at something like the, and I I don't know, I haven't you know messed around with that beta, but the Wonder Studios thing, you know, it's it's great at doing certain kinds of things, right? It's kind of designed to do certain kinds of things, at least from what I can see. But like, it's sort currently, of like when yeah. you, yeah, currently, and it's like when you get a you know a turnkey Vicon motion capture system, right, or something. Which you know, I wonder how long <laughs> people will be buying those. I actually have a question about mm-hmm. that for you guys later, but but um. You know, it it can it does bipeds great, right? Makes humans great. Like, but you there's not, or there wasn't at least, uh, you know, a few years ago, a turnkey solution for quadrupeds, right? Like, that's a specific solution, right? That's needed to be. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think it. I think we should, if we go get not critical, but like point out, amplify your problem with Wonder Studios, right? I can give you maybe three or four points that it immediately doesn't mm. work on. Yeah. But they themselves know this to be the case. And it's not oh, that it yeah, doesn't no, work. I don't, I don't mean problem. it in the sense of criticality. I'm not, that's not No, no, my... no, no. But, but I mean, in a positive way. I mean, critically, yeah. like, what is it a VFX artist would contribute? Well, a VFX artist, and we discussed this in the podcast, right? If you've got a character that has certain limb lengths, which I have, my right. head is a certain proportion to the size of my body. Now I introduce a character has a big head, yeah? So my shoulders are lower. So yeah. if I lean to go and lean on a wall, my arm is just at the wrong angle to lean on the wall because the retargeting mm-hmm. right. is a complex problem. And if that's a little complicated, think about this then. If I'm a four foot high character and I have a sensibly proportioned uh, set of limbs, my gait, my steps are not going to be as big as my steps when I'm six foot tall because I'm six foot. 
I take a step, I take a large step. So if you try mapping the four foot character onto me, they're just going to slide on the floor because they need Mm -hmm. to take three steps for my four, right? Um, And these are problems that are incredibly hard to solve from an AI point of view because it's one thing to track my motion. It's a whole nother thing to sort of retarget it and solve. But the specificity of those problems speaks to what you're addressing, Mike, which is that idea of like, you know, having the ability to sort of train or cull the kind of data sets that you want and combine them with the other ones that you could utilize to solve whatever the problem is, right? I think, yeah, that does seem like that's where it has to go at some point in the future because the unique nature of the problems that you're presented on any show, every show is different. Every show has unique problems that have to be solved and a singular system you know, at least in the present moment, doesn't seem like the best solution. It's sort of like taking like, you know, it's it's got to be, there, you want to have something that's more modular and that could be tailored and custom made yeah. to solve specific needs. So Wonder Solution, who first to point this out, say, oh, well, that's why we want to give you the 3D model, the track, the clean plate, the the data all separately, mm-hmm. because then you can do the manipulation to make that come off. Now, yeah. for the person that's shooting it at home, they don't care. It skates slightly. Like, why do I care, right? If you were in the cinema, they may not you even saw see that. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're in the cinema, people like us would go and do entire podcasts about how shitty it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so so they aren't suggesting it's a one hit wonder. They're suggesting it's a, a wonder studio of tools that uh that can be used but yeah the, so this is no go ahead well no, i'm just gonna say like this is why i adamantly say that these things aren't going to replace vfx artists they're going to be replacing we're going to see people that are not up to speed with digital tools being replaced by people that are those digital tools in this case are ai but you could have had that same statement said when you were going from optical printers to compositing right which is if you only knew how to do optical compositing and you had no interest in learning digital compositing, I'm sorry, there just aren't a lot of optical compositors well, running in Hollywood mm-hmm. anymore. And that's such a great point. And it's something that, you know, we've heard this story told many times, but it's definitely that moment, you know, in time when that transition took place, there were many incredibly gifted artists, artisans, you know, people who built physical models, people who did, you know, creature work and uh, people who did, who were optical compositors, people who were doing, uh, you know, um, uh, motion control, you know, camera work on the stage. And uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who did that work were so gifted. And when the digital, uh, you know, uh, tools came along, they resisted. They didn't want to do it. They were just like, it's not, it's not for me. I don't want to, I don't. And some people did, you know, actually, I think a good number of people did. They were invited to learn the tools and they did it and they became some of the best modelers, some of the best. Well, yeah, because they have, have these skills they undervalue, which is their eye, their Mm -hmm. sensibility, their communication skills, their ability to visualize and, and imagine. And those are the skills that are undervalued, I think, versus I know which button to press, which is actually a very transitory skill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I tell that to my kid all the time. Like he's telling me he wants to get into filmmaking and all these kind of things. And he's like, what edit, you know, like what editor should I learn? I was like, it doesn't matter. Like they all have the same buttons ultimately. Like, do you know how to tell a story? Like, 
that's what you have like watch battleship potemkin and then find all the odessa sep sequences in all the other movies you know for years after it like that's that's what's important every student every single student yeah. is like well do i need to learn you know maya yeah and it's like no no you don't have to like you know it's like it, uh, it's it's a it's not a bad one to learn but it's like you know you could yeah. learn you could learn blender learn cinema 4d yeah. like they're all the same the core principles are the same in each but i would say the end result here what we're talking about visual effects artists specifically is the word democratization implies inherently that non-professionals have the ability to do something that where only professionals had the ability to do before or price barrier or yeah. barrier to entry of X. And so what you will have is people who use, let's take Wonder Studio, people who use Wonder Studio for whatever they use it for and it's fine. And you might have somebody like, let's say my kid who goes, this is super cool. And all of a sudden realize that they want to be a visual effects artist because this is a gateway drug for them to understand the process and go, okay, I see the problems here. Uh, and now I want to understand how to do this at X level, which may lead them out of wonder studio or depending on, again, this isn't a knock on them. This is hypothetical, but AI assisted tool X may or may not have a, achieved a level of whatever it is by the time he let's say my kid wants to do visual effects he will eventually have to learn visual effects techniques in order to operate on a professional level whether that's taking his ai knowledge to your point mike to train a model or do something you know to be in that next thought yeah. process of doing something there is an interesting thing though, because like I don't want to paint a picture that's too rosy. So leaving aside any of these specific applications for a second, let's just pick on editing because then we're not sounding like we're having a go at anyone. So yeah. there was a an editor in Sydney uh, who was a tremendous man. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away sadly in very bad circumstances. But I just refer to him by his, only by his first name, therefore Carl. Carl could do an edit, and I would sit in the flame suite, and he would take the edit of a thirty second commercial. And he would just fuss with it for like several hours and he would come back and it would be noticeably better. And I couldn't tell you, unless I looked at the EDL, what had changed at all. It was just mm -hmm. better. And quite often it was one or two frames, and I'm not making this up, like a frame difference or mm -hmm. a very, very super subtle push in that you couldn't even notice was happening or holding for a beat longer on the character that wasn't talking. But I mean, these were like minor, minor changes. And, and he was just a god of editing like he was really really good at editing knowing when to cut now the problem is uh for somebody like that if once you democratize the tools and sort of flood the market and you could say the same thing about colorists with uh grading on a you know an old style a huge da vinci desk mm -hmm. once you democratize then some people are like well i don't need to pay carl or or james mm -hmm. who are really is james a really good colorist because I can do that, right? And it's like, well, you kind of kind of can, but you're not going to hit the level of mastery that those people are. Unfortunately, however, at that stage, it does drive down demand because there's a flood of people. And so yeah. it becomes very hard to justify, why am I paying this editor, you know, a thousand bucks? But I feel like that's an initial response. And then it always settles out to people realizing I'm either open, Oops, sorry, it always <laughs> settles out to people saying, I'm either okay with 
the level of work I'm getting or I need to hire somebody better, even though they may do it now cheaper, potentially, just because you wouldn't pay someone the same rate you might pay for a million dollar room that was hardware based that now they could do on their laptop and potentially, potentially get the same result. I understand where the price price shifting, but eventually you will get to people, enough people realizing that quality is quality because you can yeah. feel the difference in the edit. I was an editor for 10 years. There are things that just happen in an edit sometimes where you throw a bunch of clips together and you watch it down. You're like, Oh my God, these four clips. Like I couldn't have, if I sat here for a week, I couldn't have done that. Right. (laughs) It just, sometimes shit just happens when you're working. Uh, Well, it makes me me think that that analogy about the editor, you know, and the, the cutting a frame here and cutting a frame there and correct coming back with something that's so much better. It's, it makes me think of it's like a great musician, you know, someone who's really good with their instrument, like doing a solo and like a jazz musician, let's say, like in riffing, you know, uh, at a certain moment when they get an opportunity to have their, you know, saxophone solo or whatever it is, you know, that you hear something that only they could really do and only they could really come up with. But then, you know, the music analogy that I was thinking of, and this maybe speaks to my age too, is like the, we're in that age too, where there's so many pop stars now who everything they do is auto-tuned, right? It's like, I can't listen Mm -hmm. to that stuff. Like, cause it doesn't, but, but that aesthetic and that oral aesthetic in music for a certain population is really popular. It's irrelevant that the singer literally can't sing and is being auto-tuned. They, they still like it, you know? So to your point, I mean, I think there will be people who will see things that are kind of that, you know, turnkey solution and they won't really care, but then there will be still those things that are of high quality, but in In that transition, there will be some loss. Yeah, but we're in the there's a there's a wave, you know, like the hype cycle. You've probably seen the hype mm-hmm. cycle. There's a wave of that that the first time the tech hits, and I'll use flame for example, when the flame hit, we were charging like a thousand bucks an hour to use a flame because it cost a million bucks mm-hmm. to build a flame suite. Right. Which means if you were the operator generating a thousand bucks an hour, you could ask for a pretty high salary because you were generating like, you know, eight, ten thousand dollars a day. So your salary was not a significant proportion of the overall cost and you know, we were making 350000 a month. So you could get a good price as a flame op if you knew how to use that equipment. And there weren't that many flames. So yep. there weren't that many people that knew how to use them. And those that did uh, tended to be good at their jobs because if you're going to put a million dollar suite in, you're going to get a really good person to drive it. You're not going to get just some Joe Schmo to do it. Then there's a phase where, as I say, it gets, to use that term democratized, it gets widely distributed. And then suddenly- you're not earning a thousand bucks an hour, you're earning a thousand bucks a day and anyone's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like price down. And so if you're not close to a cash flow, you don't get paid well. And I saw that with avid editors. You'd get a bunch of avid editors that in the early days were like gods because they could control complicated disk drivey things that had all the edit in it. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly anyone could do avid. And then it was like, some of those people just didn't move beyond that and really got crippled because they could no longer charge high salaries for their editing. And their competency was more around button pressing than it was the artistry. Like obviously, obviously, Jason, I'm not talking about you, but artistry of editing, right? I, I put you in the category of somebody that can actually edit, but they were just good oh, at button I pressing. That. 
And so it goes down a lot, right? Um, but then there's a swing up as well later in this sort of hype cycle analogy. Because I think if you look at what's on YouTube now, there is like some astonishingly good free mm-hmm. home cinematography and editing and uh, comic timing and a whole lot of things. And I'm like, how do these, like a few years ago, that would have been a, you could have got a job doing that, right? Now it's like the minimum threshold for someone watching your video is that it's got shallow depth of field, good lighting, you know, it's well balanced, the audio is good. But to your point, they do have a job. Yes. That is their job making the YouTube videos and they're getting paid handsomely by having three, four, five million. They're getting more people to watch their videos daily or weekly than most people ever get to see their film they spent two years on. Right. But what's really nice about it is (laughs) those people I feel are going back to the original great editors and the original great cinematographers Mm -hmm. and saying, man, what did this guy do that made this shot so great? Why did that work? And so at the later stages of this sort of hype cycle analogy, you are getting people really tapping into those early gifted and very talented uh, pioneers. So here's my question to you guys. Where are we on that hype cycle with the AI tools in VFX? Matter we at the very start where if you know how to use them, you'll get earn a lot, or are we on the, it's about to be democratized and doesn't matter how clever you are, anyone can do it. Or are we at a later stage that people are starting to already shine on the deep appreciation of them? I think we're pretty still pretty early in the hype cycle myself, I guess. Uh, but I don't know that I don't know enough to know yet if that equates to people being able to command a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, if you, I wasn't thinking of it in that context. I guess I was thinking of how you were describing the hype cycle in the acquisition and deployment of a new technology. And with that new deployment of technology, the hype cycle in my mind is like, you know, when computer graphics came on the scene, all of a sudden, all these scripts that had been on the shelves for years were getting greenlit because like, oh, we can do this now. Right. And so it meant that you could make all these really different kinds of movies and create all these different kinds of effects. Some of them probably shouldn't have ever been made. Let's just, you know, I mean, there's some bad movies that got made, right? I mean, yeah. some bad ideas and some poor concepts that like probably didn't do that great at the box office and, you know, whatever people made money and, you know, got to work on some shows, which was cool. But, you know, I think we'll see the same thing here. You've seen now a, di- a dialing back, like now CG is everywhere. It's kind of a stock and trade in almost every single thing that we see which is great, but there also is this recalibration that's happened from that initial hype of the new tool set to come back to a place where now it's really, you know, hopefully, you know, I I feel like we've come back to a place where for the most part, you know, we're thinking about, you know, story, servicing the story and what's the best tool for X, Y, and Z, not in every case, but it's sort of come back to, you know, to earth in a way. And, you know, you look at all the things that people are doing, be it at a company level, although I, I don't know a ton of stuff that's happening at a company level using these tools, although I'm sure they're getting deployed. Oh, there are some companies doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. You would know more yeah. about that than me at this no, point. No, no, but, but I mean, well, but part of the problem is I think they, they pulled in a lot of talent about two years ago and those films are just starting to appear, if that makes mm, sense. Yeah. I mean, but you, I was just thinking you look at like, there's, you know, 
people on Instagram, right, who are creating whole universes of mm -hmm. AI generated images that are so pristine and so consistent in the kind of aesthetic, the look, the art direction, the stylization, like that, you know, it's, it's a concept designers, uh, you know, kind of fantasy universe, right? That's being articulated by a single individual who's utilizing some of these tools to do a specific kind of thing. That's where I think, at least it, right now, in my mind, that's where like a lot of people are kind of freaking out. Like when, when you have a director who comes to, you know, do a big project, say they're going to do, make a big film, they've got their script, they're going to some big, you know, not, not like a, a Guillermo del Toro or a, you know, um, James Cameron type of character, right? And they're going to make their next big project. They bring in tons of concept people, right? To start working on designs and come mm -hmm. up with ideas. And, you know, many of my friends <laughs> do that kind of stuff. And, and more and more that cadre of characters who wind up being the people who generate the, the designs and the looks that the visual effects artists wind up, you know, building the assets for and executing in shots. Those people are, uh, at least from what I'm hearing, like kind of panic stricken, you know, like the vapors, you know, like, because everything is um, looking so frightening for them right now in that there are people who can't draw, uh, can't model, you know, and they're generating amazing work using some of these text to image tools. And that's a, there's a hype to it, but I feel like it's a, it's a different, something different is going on. Like when a director sees something like, here's all the designs we did for you. Oh, and I did a couple of these AI things too. And the director looks at one of the AI ones and goes, that's it. That's the one I like, you know, like, let's take that, put that on there. You know, that, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like where it's a shifting of oh. ears and a movement into a new universe where the tools that are being utilized don't require the same skills that they did, you know, five years ago or two years ago. I, you, you perfectly segued into a thing that I've been wanting to bring up with using my director cinematographer hat, which is, you know, ultimately it's the director's job to come to, uh, communicate their vision to the team. Right. And as a director, I would love nothing more and I, or, or I do love nothing more than having tools available to me because I'm not a great illustrator and I want to be able to like both generate images that I specifically see in my head. And then of course the, the collaborative quote nature of seeing images you that are kind of either something you didn't think about that strikes your fancy or a revision to something which you would do with a person you know, a concept artist, but sure. I could do it on my own. Uh, I think it's just a conversation starter. I don't believe that I personally would replace a concept artist if I, if I was able to have one on a film that needed uh, that kind of work. I mean, obviously production designer, but uh, let's, let's add them together. Production designer slash concept artist. I want to be able to communicate to them as cleanly and clearly as possible so that they can do their work better. Right. It, it, I don't think the issue is that production designer X or concept designer X was the one who invented this thing that is part of the film. Now it's that I communicated something as the director and they 
took it and then they were creative using that context because you're never going to get anything dead on. You're going to say, make this exactly. That would be, I mean, it may happen. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I guess I just think there's a, there's a, I, I, I feel like the jury's still out on where that will land. Well, that imagery is going to start to get, you know, unless there's more than just mid journey, mid journey at the moment is the best, I think, single, um, generative imagery uh, kind of thing that's certainly easier to use than something like a stable diffusion or whatever, but they all kind of look the same over mm-hmm. time. Like the images don't look dissimilar. So at a certain point, people are going to start to want variation and, you know, a director will walk in and all the, you know, production team. Well, there's like, a joke about, like about 900. There's a joke these. about concept designers, right? Where there's a timeline and it's like a, you know, a timeline of like every concept designer. And then there's a point on the timeline that says Sid Mead. And then the, the <laughs> line, the line goes vertical. Right. And so that, yeah. you know, the concept designers work begin becomes homogenized. It's not really true, but it's kind of the, yeah. it's a joke, you know, you'd say Macquarie too, but yeah. 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 Okay. So let me just now reframe the whole problem again from a different point of view to our last kind of part of this discussion, which is if we go back a few years and I was looking for the cutting edge tech, then I was looking at the VFX houses to produce the VFX tech. It was just no doubt about it that there was a period now. It's not always exactly like that. I'll argue that at the outset of digital, what was happening in LA with the episodic work was actually superior to what was happening in the VFX houses and the digital work that preceded it. But nevertheless, for a, year in, year out, you kind of go, wow, that is amazing. I can't wait when it gets to the street. But at the moment, it's specialist tools made by ILM or or Egg or Wetter. And at some point, hopefully, you know, that'll move into Mayer or move into Nuke or whatever, and I'll be able to do it too. <clears throat> I would argue now that this is absolutely not the case and that what the VFX houses are doing are needing to look at things like, well, this is a good example, and it's so embarrassing to even say it out loud, but I don't know if you guys have checked out what Snapchat can do on a chat yeah. lens. Yeah. Yeah, my, snap lenses teen, are astonishing. Yeah. I mean, having a teenager is really helpful to keep up with that stuff. Yeah. Like, But yeah, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that earlier when we were talking about all the, the uh, Wonder Studios stuff is the way in which a simple app like Snapchat or even all the stuff, like I think there's TikTok filters that do it too. Like the kinds of things that you can do, like where my son will send me a picture of himself with a full beard. And I'm like, what, like <laughs> what's going on? Or he'll show, send me a picture of him as a woman or as him, you know, with, no, there was a, there's a de-aging app in Snap. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it is astonishing that it's real time that it's just using my iPhone. There's no calibration. It just looks at yep. me and I look at it and I go, that that looks really good as de-aging goes. Yep. I mean, I'm oh, sorry, aging goes. I mean, it has aged me in a way that a visual effects, sorry, a special effects artist would spend a fortune trying to apply mm-hmm. prosthetics and yep. it moves in my head perfectly and it's not hokey and it's not, I mean, obviously some snap filters are like ridiculously dorky yeah. and stupid. Right. But for some of them, I'm like, dude, that's really good. And and this is a free downloadable app mm-hmm. thing that goes on your phone. And so I might just use that as an example of like what would 
have previously been a laughable thing that you would actually look at that from a VFX point of view and go, actually, that's pretty good. Um, and of course, there's a lot of those, right? And a lot of these uh, tools are coming out of companies that have got nothing to do with the visual effects industry. Yeah. They may play in what you'd call the media and entertainment space. Like I think you'd argue that Snap, uh, mm -hmm. you know, is like a kind of a fun entertainment, almost like a game thing. But nevertheless, like this idea of the superiority of film tech and that, you know, it's it's the gold standard of which we hope to one day emulate. If you're in a VFX right now, you really need to be casting your net wide in what you're looking at and what you're reading and referencing, I think. For sure. I, I have friends who make Snapchat filters and uh, Snap just announced a partnership with Disguise to give uh, AR experiences at concerts and stuff, like events and things, which I'm assuming means they're going to aggregate cameras in some capacity or do some, I mean, something potentially. Uh, somebody was uh, at NAB this year, somebody was telling me about the ability they had to, through a, a P2P, PTP server to, to literally lock up all the cell phones in a stadium. If you held your phone up, all the phones could be synchronized through some specific protocol. And it's like, you know, once you can do those things, you have, I mean, volumetric data and there's all sorts of data you can generate uh, through the through con the consumer's interaction uh, that would prior be like, you know, multi-million dollar uh, Intel installs or Canon's free view. I've already, I've already had a meeting with a client where it came up where it was like one of my guys were like, we could do this with an iPhone. And I said, if you do this with an iPhone, <laughs> they're not going to pay you. They're just not going to give you any money. Like if you want to mm -hmm. do this, you're going to have to use a camera that looks bigger than an iPhone because <laughs> if you're just doing it with an iPhone, the number in their head has got three digits. If yeah. you're doing it with a... A uh, professional kind of camera that's like a black magic, it's four digits. If you do it with a red or an ARRI, it's five digits. I don't care mm -hmm. about anything to do with the tech here. I'm just telling you yeah. one set. You pull out an iPhone, they're paying you hundreds of dollars, not tens of thousands. Yeah, but it's it is the truth. Optics matter in in these professional environments, even if the iPhone ultimately may be the best solution. I'm not saying I don't know the specifics of your job, but even if the iPhone is the better solution, you will never be able to charge the same. You won't be able to charge the same. You will at some point have people wake up to that fact. Like let's say this isn't the case, but let's say it was LiDAR scanning, right? It's like, well, yeah, a major LiDAR scanner right now is much, much better than an iPhone scanner. But having said that, you know, if you're doing um, NERFs, which is a great way of mm -hmm. like scanning an environment, uh, how long until everybody agrees that the best way to do that on set isn't to haul in some expensive piece of kit, but to just get uh, somebody that's the soup to just walk around with their camera doing a nerf sample of the set between, you know, over lunch. Yeah. It's like Luma the, AI or something. Yeah. 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 And, and Luma AI is just like another great example of one of these tools that is astonishingly good. Um yeah, polycam too. When I, I was looking at an apartment to move into, I ultimately moved into a different apartment, but I went into the apartment, it was empty and it was even mid construction. I took open polycam on my phone and chose the room mode. And I literally just held it up and walked around the apartment and it just glows the walls when it, when it 
captures it. I walked through doors and around and no, no pattern of any noticeable kind. And when I hit done, not only did I have a 3D model of the, of the apartment, I had a floor overhead floor plan as well with measurements. Well, and speaking of phone app VFX <laughs> tech, uh, yeah. Working with my students uh, this semester's class, uh, we have a capstone project where we did this fun robot project. And um, one of the things we did is we cruised around campus and we were shooting, you know, I brought, uh, a, a, excuse me, a, one of those little Theta Z1 cameras and was shooting some high dynamic range probes, you know, to, for our lighting setups and stuff of wherever the character was going to be. And one of my students, I didn't even know about this thing. One of my students was like, Hey, professor, check this out. And he just had this thing called HDR EYE, HDR yeah, on his yeah. iPhone. And he, he went around, took all the pictures. And like, it was just as good as what I was getting. Like it worked in this, you know, gave us, you know, the kind of data that we would want from a light probe. Like mm -hmm. it got us, you know, a percentage of the way there. Right. So it was, and I, and it was, I think it was free. <laughs> or maybe yeah, it was not, like five It's not expensive. Yeah. It's not expensive. And I was just like, damn. All right. Well, there goes my thousand dollars Z one that I bought. <laughs> I did that on a I did that on a commercial we did for Fila and like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when it came out years ago, and uh, we were using the molecule at the time for visual effects. And I I uh, we needed just there was one visual effects shot where a shoe walked through a puddle, and we were going to have like goo, you know, the mm -hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles goo on the floor on the floor. And I just called Chris uh, Healer and I was like, I'm just going to do this. I have an iPhone app that'll make a 360, you know, uh, like panel. It'll just tell me when it's full. And that's what they used as the reflection map. And, you know, that was like five years ago, more, maybe yeah. seven years ago. I do feel like it is, as we started this whole conversation, uh, just a fact you have to devote now significant effort just to keeping up. Yeah. Otherwise, the person that uh, was Matt's uh, student is your actual jaw, uh, your boss, and says, <laughs> yeah. what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. you, we just do it to this iPhone app, and then you look like an idiot. Um, and they are so willing to accept that you can just do everything with an iPhone, that that'll be the, you know, my thing about you only be able to charge it if you put an Arri, they're going to be like, I'm going to fire this guy because he always pulls out the area and he should be pulling out the iPhone. So yeah, well, it, is, say, it is. I, a and maybe you, maybe you guys would agree, but I would say, I think it's so exciting when uh, somebody, you know, especially in this case, a student comes up to me and says like, Hey, but do you know about this thing? And I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. And they demonstrate it to me. And I just go like, well, this is killer. Like, let's show everybody like, and it's great because they become, the student teacher, you know, they're teaching the mm -hmm. class for a minute and doing this thing. And there's, I think actually weirdly a lot of learning and a lot of real life modeling of the kinds of things that happen when you're working on a big show, you know, at a VFX mm -hmm. company, you're, you're always stumbling into these places where somebody solves a problem and it could be the supervisor, but it could be some, you know, like low ranking kind of, you know, person on the line who discovers a way to fix something and comes up with a unique solution and they wind up showing everybody else. And it's like, that's, what's mm -hmm. kind of cool about working in the visual effects space is that it's a team sport, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you have to defeat your ego though, that you are the center of knowledge. Um, you can't yeah. go on set thinking you're the expert and that you know how to do this. 
what you need to do is value those other skills. I, I have the ability to communicate effectively and understand and sure. realize the vision and mm-hmm. have an eye and all those other things. But yeah, the idea that you are the only one that understands it, which, you know, in the early days of digital was true. I'd walk on set and no one had a clue what was going on. And I was like some kind of prophet of the digital age that would explain <laughs> it all to them. You still uh, now are, I feel. No, no. <laughs> anyway, with that uh, embarrassing comment, we will, uh, I guess, wind up. But it's it's been a really interesting discussion. I think what we'll try and do, guys, is uh, collate the various apps and software that we've spoken about and put them in the show notes. So if you go to fxguide.com, uh, we'll have you know links to those sites so that you can explore them yourselves. Though, as I said at the outset, the list will have changed dramatically by the time you even listen to this. But uh, it's good to know where you can follow up on those things. Um, Matt, where can people... Uh, potentially actually enroll to get your wisdom and teach you how to do things. <laughs> yeah, I'm at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts, uh, where I'm the chair of the Department of Communication Arts. It's like so many syllables, <laughs> get, it, get it all out of me. But um, there, I just wanted to say too, there are some great things that maybe we can include too, of some really interesting uh, text to video things that people are doing right now, mm-hmm. as well as I think one really great talk, the AI dilemma that's been kind of making the rounds. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at that, but it kind of talks about and explores some of the current things that are happening like just this month, right? (laughs) So it's relevant Mm -hmm. sort of for a small period of time, but it's a really interesting conversation about some of the larger philosophical um, and ethical concerns around uh, some of the uses of some of the tools, which could be really interesting for some people to listen to. Also, uh, I think maybe I shared like a article uh, from the uh, New Yorker, I think, uh, about a guy who's writing about, I think you might have shared it, Matt, about the, uh, you know, it's not really AI or whatever. And he he, he gets into a whole, yeah, yeah, and he gets into a whole thing at the end of his article about, I think it's like data integrity, where it's like opening the black box. So humans actually understand what's happening, but have an agency to participate and get paid for their input to the model. And almost it, it almost becomes a blockchain effect of like residual payments based on usage and other things. It's yeah. an interesting approach. And I think is it's a smart uh, piece for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And certainly from a visual effects standpoint, because of asset generation and things like that, it might, it, it would be very interesting to see how that can be applied to, yeah. you know, things beyond chat GPT. Absolutely. And uh, look, we'll include a bunch of stuff, but also we'd love to hear your comments, um, either email us or, or put comments in the story because this isn't obviously the traditional VFX show. We normally uh, critique a film, uh, but we did want to geek out on some of this tech and it it's so far ranging and it's not going to be appearing in films, we don't think, for like 18 months. And so it was, you know, good to be discussing it right now. And there is so much more that we could have discussed. So if you want to hear more or you've got your own stuff that you'd like to share with us, we would love to hear your favorite piece mm-hmm. of uh, totally. tech. And if you can do that, we'll try and flag it in a future show and uh, credit you with uh, with having found it because, yeah, Lord only knows it's uh, the wild west out there when it comes to actually discovering <laughs> stuff. So uh, email us or post in the chat um, or even on Twitter to uh, our uh, posts. We'll feel free to gather those up. Um, but Jason, uh, connecting with you? Uh, yes, uh, Jason Diamond on all the socials, uh, our virtual production stage, Zero Space. And 
uh, I would just like to say my favorite portion uh, term of the hype cycle is the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> I, that, that is, uh, yes. That might is be my autobiography title. Yeah. Particularly <laughs> bleak and miserable place to end up. In. Yes. I don't think we're actually in that. But no, yeah. we're not. We're nowhere near that. Say on my yeah. tombstone. Um, <laughs> And also, it was a conscious decision on our part not to discuss the ethics or the uh, artist's rights on this show right now. We acknowledge those to be incredibly valuable discussions, but obviously in an hour, hour and a half show, if we were to discuss that, we'd probably take up most of the show. Uh, so we're not ignoring the issue of artist's rights and the uh, issues around copyright and uh and how one can reasonably work in this world. But we just wanted to focus in on uh, what was actually going on with the VFX tools uh, in particular. Um, as for me, you can obviously find me at uh, FX Guide. And if you want to email me, uh, MikeS at fxguide.com, and we'll um, share those with the, uh, with the guys over any clever ideas you came up with. So that's MikeS at fxguide.com if you want to share any of the cool tools that you have. Uh, and if you're in a company that's developing these cool tools, we'd also like to hear about you. We we clearly are on beta with a lot of these uh, tools and we're happy to provide feedback where we can uh, because we want to contribute as much as the next uh, team in making sure that these are well developed. Uh, and with that, I'll say thanks so much, guys, for being here. It's great fun talking to you. I enjoyed the show tremendously and we'll see you next time. Thanks. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.